Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Logan Allen, founder and managing general partner at FinVC, a venture capital firm focused on enterprise SaaS fintech companies in the US, UK, and Europe with a portfolio that includes six unicorns. In this episode, we discuss Logan's background and his journey to becoming a venture capital entrepreneur the reason why FinVC focuses specifically on backing the fintech enablers that are building disruptive B2B-oriented businesses, investment thesis, and several portfolio company examples, venturing internationally, his passion for chess, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Logan Allen. All right, Logan. Welcome. How are you today? Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Really excited. Where are you joining us from, Logan? Uh, I'm in San Francisco in my office, believe it or not. We're here in Jackson Square, and uh, we're also opening up a New York office as we speak. And looking at commercial real estate in New York right now is pretty highly advantaged. So excited to be on both coasts and excited to be here with you virtually, as it were. And I spent some time at Warden for my SEMA certificate back in the day when I was at Invesco and needed that credential to look at managers like myself. So it's great to be here and uh, excited to geek out on FinTech with you. Yeah, no, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned we're doing this virtually. I've done over 100 episodes and only one was in person, <laughs> but uh-huh. uh, virtually works out really well. So you know, I'm excited to chat. You know, so Logan, tell us about yourself and, and maybe you can start by sharing your, your background and why fintech? Sure. So I started uh, my career in management consulting really in the basement of banks uh, on Wall Street, helping those banks think about and build proprietary technology, as we called it at that point. It wasn't even cool enough to be called fintech. And thankfully, third-party software emerged to solve for the, some of the initial pain points in banking, everything from kind of the core banking stack uh, all the way through to the front office in early days of CRM with companies like Siebel and uh, Thomson Reuters and so forth. And so I was living in New York and uh, running around Wall Street as a management consultant at Capgemini, helping these banks innovate, which even at that point was like helping an elephant dance. I recognized that there was a significant amount of legacy technology that the front office was begging for efficiency. And that was kind of that first wave of enterprise software. It wasn't even SaaS at that point. It was in-house hosted solutions to help banks innovate. And so I rode this wave in management consulting, proprietary development to in-house software to the beginnings of SaaS and cloud migration which is still very much an ongoing concern given that only about 10% of financial data is in the cloud. So the the banks and the financial services industry is dead last in cloud adoption, despite being number one in global spend at about a trillion dollars per year. 
And then I went into the industry side. So I was working as one of the heads of strategy and innovation at City National Bank, had the same role ultimately in Invesco. And I grew up, I spent time growing up here in the Bay Area. I consider it my US home, although I was born in Frankfurt and lived in Europe for many years. And all my friends from high school were working in tech and as VCs. And I was running around in a suit and I was like, man, these guys are having a lot more fun than I was. So I left Invesco and joined SoFi as an early team member and decided to go back to get my master's at Stanford as a Sloan fellow at the business school and was working at SoFi throughout and uh, you know trying to connect with other fintechs and other startups that I thought were doing innovative things. And that's really where I changed my trajectory to being more focused on tech and building companies. And then ultimately got into the investing space first off my own small personal balance sheet as an entrepreneur, and then uh, ultimately as a generalist at a couple of firms before I went back to SoFi to really double down on specializing in fintech. I really could not understand the generalist VC mindset going to IC, even though I was focused on fintech, I was supposed to be focused on everything. And at the IC, I was voting on companies in healthcare and virtual reality, et cetera. And I was like, I can't discern whether this is going to be a good company in virtual reality. I'm not even sure what that is. So I really went back to SoFi because I believe very strongly that specialization is absolutely going to be the future of venture capital and private equity. So I built out SoFi's corporate development arm and then formed SoFi Ventures to take minority positions in companies where SoFi could be an amplifier. And that was strictly B2B oriented businesses because at SoFi, you know, we're in everything on the consumer side. So I was pretty conflicted out in terms of investing in any consumer oriented businesses. So that's really where I started to build my playbook that would ultimately become FinVC when I spun out in 2018. And I call us FinTech nerds with capital. Sometimes I say we're FinTech nerds that just happen to have capital to put to work frankly, because all of us on the team have a combination of corporate operating experience, startup operating experience, and venture track records. And we're out with a thesis-driven approach trying to find uh, companies from seed stage through to pre-IPO. We have two strategies we operate out of, which gives us a ton of flexibility, but it all starts with a thesis and a view that is that drives us proactively into the market and engages with entrepreneurs with our fintech expertise and our operating approach. So I'll pause there. Hopefully that's helpful context. Logan, you're right at home, right? This, this is the podcast for fintech nerds from one to another. So interesting, you mentioned SoFi, right? Uh, we've had Anthony Noto on the podcast, not Cagney. Maybe we should change that. But talk about that transition you, you, from spinning out and then, you know, you're not a single LP fund, right? I mean, you, you've had to go out and fundraise. It's a different ballgame. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And you've got the CVCs out there. CVCs is a very different mindset, right? I had entrepreneurs that literally wouldn't meet with me when I was at SoFi because they said, oh, well, you know, you're competitive. You're in this space. We're worried you're going to steal our IP, whatever that reason was. And I realized the limitations of being a CVC. Even though our spirit was, you know, we want to invest and we want to help you by being a customer, by being a distribution partner, by driving our support across our network. But it was a very difficult position to be in. And you know, I think Anthony and Michelle Gill have done a phenomenal job 
of taking SoFi from the business that Mike built and taking it to the next level and really delivering on this vision at SoFi that we had of being multi-product and multi-channel and serving millennials and those that really want to engage digitally with their financial services partner throughout their life cycle, starting with this incredible entry point product of student loan refinancing primarily. We, we largely got out of the origination process and then supporting them with financial services as they scale on a broad basis. And I think the other thing that SoFi has done well is they vertically integrated the tech stack with the Galileo acquisition. I think from a public market comp perspective, that's going to lend itself very nicely to them being viewed as a true tech business versus a balance sheet lending business that might accrue to a tangible book value valuation, which is you know where Lending Club and On Deck uh, historically had been, et cetera. And so you're absolutely right. Going from CVC with all those aspects and then becoming an independent financial-focused VC, you got to go and convince a number of LPs to provide you with capital. I had a track record from SoFi and some prior experiences, but being a first-time fund manager and at the time a solo GP, I was a one-man army, it was really challenging. But uh, I managed to convince some family offices and some significant institutional LPs like Blackstone that I was a safe bet. Uh, and then we had a thesis and a process that was repeatable and could drive consistent alpha into the future. And thankfully, we've delivered on that. And we're continuing to scale the business here with a much larger team based between San Francisco and New York and 22 portfolio companies now. So um, the FinVC family has gotten bigger, both on the team side and within the portfolio. And it's been a lot of sweat equity uh, to get us here. But this past week, we turned three years old. And so we've been able to scale really quickly, which, you know, again, I always say our portfolio companies make us look good. And we've had some great announcements in companies like Pipe this week. And uh, you're going to see some other announcements coming on them that we're really excited about. Obviously, uh, Figure has been a great story and Mike's managed to build another business that's incredibly transformative and I think will be a generational type company. And so we're really excited about these businesses and happy to talk more about any of them that you might be interested in and the listeners might be interested in. Yeah, yeah, of course. And we talk to a number of investors, fintech investors, all of them. And, you know, oftentimes the focus is fintech, but they can be generalists. That's not your focus. You, you're mentioning that you are backing the enablers, right? And specifically B2B. Maybe talk about that, about your, your thesis and why decide to focus specifically on this area of the market. Yeah, great question, Miguel. So if you look at any geography, they follow the same patterns in terms of the fintech maturity curve, as we call it, or the fintech pyramid. We have a slide, we show LPs, we show entrepreneurs, and you can look at this in any country, in the US, China, Europe, et cetera, it starts with the consumer fintechs, right? So the old school fintechs in the US are groups like Lending Club and Prosper and PayPal and so forth. And then you see the SMB focused fintechs emerge. That's the funding circles, the squares, the legacy cabbage business, et cetera. And then you see the more B2B oriented businesses. I would include a firm in that category. I'd include Stripe and Marketa in that category. And then you're starting to see, even within that category, some further evolution in newer enterprise software companies 
that are starting to compete with the legacy enterprise software companies like FIS, Fiserv, Temenos in Europe. And it's that category that we're really focused on because we firmly believe that the next 10 to 15 years are going to have significant greenfield opportunities in that space and that the banks have a massive strategic imperative to digitize. And that tailwind only accelerated as a result of COVID. So that's our thesis. We start with that macro perspective with the enablers that are trying to partner with the banks. They're trying to partner with other fintechs, whether those are early stage or growth and late stage businesses. And they're trying to partner with the traditionally digitally native players like Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. So if you think about that, you've got the legacy players, banks, insurers, retailers. I would put Walmart in that category who just announced a fintech initiative with our friends at Rivet, which I think is going to be really interesting. And then in, the, in kind of the digitally native world, you've got Google that just announced an embedded finance program with a number of bank partners. And all of those embedded, all those legacy digitally native players like Apple and Facebook and so forth, they've had payments since inception, right? They had to figure out how to monetize. They started with payments, but now you're going to see significant maturity. Amazon, another great example, started in payments, added a credit card, then added lending for their merchants. You're going to see a lot more coming out of them as well. And then in the true fintech space, you've got the disruptors, my legacy role at SoFi, Robinhood, Revolut, et cetera. And you've got these enablers that I spoke to as where we're focused. And they're trying to be Switzerland, right? They want to partner with everybody. And we think that's the most interesting opportunity from a venture investment perspective. And it's a place we can add the most value. We have now over 1,200 relationships with banks, insurers, mature fintechs, asset managers, hedge funds, private equity firms, et cetera. And we can help partner with those players and bring our fintechs in to help them innovate. And we think that's a great strategy. I'm investing in a consumer company where we see a, quite a bit of saturation, right? I don't think there's room for another neo bank or another brokerage digital platform. And there's definitely you know, very significant challenges in the SMB space, particularly when you've got you know, the government competing with you on those loans. So that's why we think you know, the enablement space and this enterprise software and, and intersection is the most interesting. Something that comes to mind when it's uh, specifically the enablers for the financial services is how some of them are starting focusing on just a sliver of fintechs because it's low you know, short sell cycle and high value for customer. And then they gradually graduate, right? And, and they, they start offering that to community banks. And then ideally, then you get a, you know, like a city group or something like that. And, you know, we've had Sam from Oculus, Laura from Aloy, and I think they've kind of followed a similar pattern. Is that something that you're seeing amongst your portfolio companies? Yeah, and we think very highly of Oculus and Alloy. We think those are exactly the types of companies we invest in, and we are very bullish on both of those businesses. I would say that absolutely uh, they start in fintechs typically, only because if you look at an API-driven tech stack and the ease of integration there, being able to provide an API developer-focused sales uh, motion, right? So. You go to Alloy's website or you go to Plaid's website, you can immediately engage with them as a developer and an engineer, and you don't need to talk to any salespeople, right? Developers don't want to talk to salespeople. If there's not an API a set of information on your website or a sandbox, 
And all that documentation isn't right out of the box, so to speak, and they can't insert a line of code, much like you know Uber did with Stripe back in the day, they're probably not going to engage with you. I always look at company websites when we're doing diligence. And if there's not API documentation or some way to engage directly, and there's a click to contact us and it's an enterprise sales motion, that tends to be a flag for me. But to your point, there's this long tail, which is typically API self-serve driven. And then they gradually start to build towards enterprise customers, which is a hands-on professional services driven sales process. That's a very natural maturity curve and you're seeing it throughout the fintechs. And it typically starts in small fintechs, graduating into growth stage fintechs, graduating into late stage, maybe public fintechs like the Intuits and the PayPals and the Squares of the world. We're all still trying to innovate and outpace. And then they start to go into regional banks, SMB banks, and then ultimately the big enterprise players. And I think that is the natural sales learning curve for these uh, types of businesses. And, And we think it's the right step function so that they grow into it and that they're enterprise ready, right? And being enterprise ready is tough. You got to have SOC compliance, GDPR compliance. You got to be able to engage with APIs and probably FTP file formats. You probably need to understand what COBOL is. Like (laughs) there's all kinds of issues and challenges in selling into the banks and those procurement departments are really difficult. So you have to have that basis from a revenue perspective, from a sales motion standpoint, have your integration frameworks nailed down before you're ready to really target those banks in a meaningful way. Let's talk a bit about your investment cycle, and then we can zoom in into a couple of companies. Ideally for you, how does it work, right? How long does it take from getting to know the team to them pulling the trigger? And I know this is going to vary, but maybe you can walk us through that process. Yeah, I think it varies dramatically. And obviously, we have a flagship fund that's seed, seed through B focus, and we have a growth equity strategy called Horizons that's Series C, Series D focus, both follow on from our flagship and then opportunistic. And we have a very tight investment box. As I said, we're very thesis oriented. So we're going out and proactively sourcing these companies. That proactive sourcing approach really goes through entrepreneur relationships. Connecting with entrepreneurs that we're invested in today, we have 22 CEOs and growing, entrepreneurs we've worked with as colleagues in the past, or entrepreneurs we've invested in in the past, and they might be in the fintech uh, space or in other enterprise industries, is the best place to source company ideas. That is the best filter, particularly the eng and product folks at those companies that have a super high bar for the things they like. So when you go to them with a thesis, so for example, we've been spending a lot of time in the insurance as a service space recently, and we've been trying to find a company that provides API-driven embedded insurance. And there's literally, you can count on less than a couple fingers, the companies that are doing it well here in the US. And there's several in Europe where that becomes a pretty interesting business model given the regulatory passporting. We found all of the companies in that category and everything else we've done through conversations with entrepreneurs but we're having a conversation on theses versus me calling you know, uh, one of our portfolio company CEOs or uh, an engineer I maybe worked with at SoFi and saying, hey, have you seen any cool companies lately, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's not the way we work. So it's very thesis, very specific. And then we have a specific investment box where with a seed stage company, for example, we want to see roughly 250 to 500K of trailing ARR kind of visibility into one to 2 million on a, on a forward-looking basis. And we want to have a thesis alignment 
We want to see typically a repeat entrepreneur. I'm not going to say that we won't ever invest in first-time entrepreneurs because we have and we will, um, but we want to see some level of experience in working in a startup environment. Going from a big bank or a big asset manager spinning out and starting a company, not a lot of success rate there, unfortunately. And while we certainly respect that, we think there's opportunity there still, it's been a little bit more binary on the results versus folks that have tried or in some cases failed to start a fintech company or have been a part of a you know, significant and successful fintech, have learned the rope, so to speak, and then went out and started their own company. That's a different dynamic. And then you know, we're looking uh, for companies that obviously are ARR-driven, recurring revenue models, B2B. They typically have both an ARR model plus a transaction and GMV component to what they do. That might be a piece of interchange, might be a piece of the loan, loan spread, et cetera. And then uh, we also need to be able to add value. We had a bunch of investors in my past life as an entrepreneur, and they would show up every quarter and ask us what our financials were. And if the financials were off plan, they would ask all these questions about why we're off plan. And then we'd never hear from them again, right? Until the next quarter. That's not how we want to be, right? Those are the most annoying types of VCs. (laughs) So we want to be on the board. We want to be adding value. We want to be help first. And we want to look at this as a you know, very significant partnership where you know, we're helping them with business development, we're helping them raise capital, we're helping them hire, we're helping them with go-to-market, particularly around sales, composition, pricing, all of those aspects. And then we're helping them with corporate development, whether that's acquiring or preparing to be acquired or preparing these days to SPAC, et cetera. And so that's really how we think about that process. And great example is a company, and this is public information because the CEO decided to tweet about it, is Pipe, right? So Pipe was our first COVID deal. Never met Harry and McCall in person, but it was like a love at first sight type of thing, right? And we went from having just met them to term sheet in, I think, six days. And that was because... We had been building this thesis, building this thesis around the fact that SaaS pricing is broken and SaaS revenue recognition is broken. And the reason I say that is if you're a SaaS company in your early stage and you want to reinvest in marketing and reinvest in company building, you're going to go to your biggest customers and you're going to say, hey, rather than paying us out over a year or two years, we'll discount our product by 30% that you fully expressed you're willing to pay 100% for so that we can get the money right now. And that is like a really problematic issue for CFOs and CEOs of SaaS companies. And we were feeling that pain in our own portfolio. And so as a result, they go out and take venture debt or they go back to their VCs and they say, hey guys, we need more money for growth because we have these long dated contracts and we're not getting paid quickly enough. So Pipe saw this issue in the market and they solved for it very elegantly with a tech-enabled solution that integrates into your SaaS accounting software and provides automated payments. So it's one button. I look at a contract with, let's say, a big corporate, and I want to get that money right now and take a little bit of a haircut, but certainly not as great of a haircut as a 30 40% discount. I can do that with one click. And so we loved the way they were thinking about the problem. There was total alignment in terms of thesis. And this was a repeat entrepreneur team with deep expertise massive conviction on the market and a huge TAM starting with SaaS revenue, but then being expandable to any type of recurring revenue. And because of our capital markets experience from our SoFi days and our investment in figure, 
we knew how big the securitization opportunity was and how inefficient that market was. And we wrote a term sheet up and got it to them and funded within a couple of weeks of meeting the company. Now, in other instances, you're absolutely right. It takes years to build a relationship, particularly for our growth and late stage companies. We've done deals where we met that company in, a, in the seed round and we didn't really get conviction, but we stayed in touch. We built a relationship and then we did a series C, right? So our view is we took a very long view on these things. This is my last job. So I can kind of do that. But we always talk to entrepreneurs as frequently and as often and as early as possible because we love having those conversations. Literally, I could do that all day long and it does not feel like we should be getting paid to do this because it's so much fun. I love geeking out with entrepreneurs pre-seed when they just have an idea and trying to understand what's driving that idea and helping them refine it and then ultimately continuing to build that relationship and trying to be helpful to them. So. Hopefully that helps me go, but that's our mentality. That's how we think about these things and gave the one example on how quickly these things can actually move as well. Yeah. And with regards to Harry and Pipe, it probably helps that they are quote unquote building in public, right? For to accelerate those days. It's interesting. I, I see Pipe and I have some experience in the supply chain finance space and I see it as the evolution of that. It's a lot more tech-driven for a specific industry right now, which is SaaS. But it's just the evolution of that, right? You're, you're accelerating cash flows, specifically for Pi, because it's been so public recently. Like, How would you like the company to evolve? Yeah, so I think the round just got announced. So it's public information now, which is timely for this conversation. And they brought on just some prolific investors, right? Chamath. Uh, Mark Benioff, uh, Shopify, Siemens, interestingly, right? And you look at Siemens, you're like, why is Siemens in this round? And then you can think about telecom payments and your mobile phone contract. That's recurring revenue, right? And why wouldn't Siemens, as opposed to taking out a bunch of leverage on their balance sheet, just securitize that? Right? And then you start thinking about other types of revenue that's recurring and, and the market just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I think they truly have the opportunity to be the financing engine for literally any recurring revenue, period. And fully tech-enabled, very easy end-to-end product that connects the capital markets with those recurring revenue players and as a true marketplace for that. Um, but maintains a capital light and efficient non-balance sheet business in between. And so that's our vision for the company. And I think it's a shared one, certainly with Harry and the team. And I applaud Harry and the team for building in public and just being completely transparent about this. And the reason they are, and the reason we're so public about the way we think about the world in our theses is it's all about execution. (laughs) And they have out-executed and out-hustled everybody else who has tried to enter into this space. And you look at a lot of their peers and they are really challenged with the way Pipe's been able to scale. And now that ecosystem, particularly with the strategic round we just did, is so powerful. So we're really excited about what they've built and and how they've thought about the problem. And I think for other companies, it's a great model to look at wearing their heart on their sleeve and their business model on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> right. And and that's just very, very clear. And and I think it's additive to the ecosystem and the fintech community. Yeah, happy, happy to say that my co-host Ryan will be hosting Harry pretty soon. And I'm 99% certain that it all happened over Twitter. <laughs> so Logan, you've made uh, close to a dozen 
investments, right? A dozen companies, more, more investments than that, I'm sure. 22. <laughs> right, right, right. More than 2,000. Yeah, that's what I meant. You're right. How about international? Because these are all mostly U.S. companies, correct? Yeah, so our focus, because we're B2B oriented and particularly have that enterprise SaaS lens with our investment box, is exclusively US, UK, Europe for right now. You and I have talked about LATAM being an incredible emerging fintech market. But going back to my earlier comments, it's right in that SMB phase, right? So it started in consumer, new bank, right? Awesome business, incredible founders. It's going to be a huge, huge company. But there were a bunch of companies that started around the same time that failed. And that's that consumer challenge, which is those businesses tend to be pretty binary. There were a number of companies that tried to compete with us at SoFi that nobody knows about anymore, right? Because they they went under. And so I think it's a winner-take-all business, particularly on a regional level with the challenger banks. Newbank has clearly demonstrated they're winning in Latin. And then it became about SMB. You've got Credit Gusto and a number of these other players. There's also some incredible prop tech happening, but again, on the B2C side in Latin. We think, and we're tracking very closely on this, there are going to be some meaningful B2B-oriented companies. But in the meantime, we are bringing our companies cross-border from the US and Europe into Latin. So we have companies like Natomi that provide customer service automation in any language. We have companies like NeuroID that fight fraud at the tip of the spear on any web form and for any nationality. They're operating in LATAM across fintechs and the banks. And then on Fido in the digital legal ID space, same thing, right? And so our view is that because we're enterprise SaaS focused, our companies are infinitely portable. And they can go into these markets and LATAM has become a really important one, as has Southeast Asia. Less so China for us. We haven't brought a number of companies yet into China, certainly into Hong Kong. But China is a very challenging market to JD companies into. And I think over time, it's going to be an important part of the strategy. But for right now, we're really focused on Europe, Latin America, and North America. And um, we also have a, a MENA strategy through a joint venture with a local VC. It's a small early stage fund that we're using as a, as a test balloon, so to speak, in that region with backing by local LPs who see an inflection point in the MENA region happening. And they knew they needed a Silicon Valley-based firm who had the deep fintech expertise, had seen the movie before, so to speak, to come into that region and start something localized. So we have, through our JV now, six companies in MENA in North Africa that we're pretty excited about. And so... We will approach regional investments that way. I think you know we will continue to be U.S. Europe focused. We're opening up a London office this year. I think we have advantages of investing in the U.S. and Europe. I grew up there. We have great networks there. We hired uh, Henry Cashin, who was an early U.S. employee at Klarna. So we have deep networks to be able to leverage on. But I feel like if you're going to go to other regions, Mina being a good example, Asia being another great example. You really need local partners. And so we've decided to take a JV approach to that versus a franchise approach, which a number of Valley VCs have tried. And I just can't sit here in my chair in San Francisco and tell you that a company in Dubai or a company in Singapore is going to be the winner in that category, in that region without local team, local expertise. And I think that's how we're going to continue to expand into other very important regions from a fintech maturity perspective that are further up that uh, maturity curve I mentioned. Going forward, 
would you also consider expanding beyond enablers and beyond B2B infrastructure? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. And I think we really feel that B2B oriented businesses, particularly in terms of strategic exits and IPOs, have been the best outcomes, right? And we think public comps are showing that and strategic M&A comps are showing that. And I think that's a function of the revenue model, right? In part where, you know, it's ARR, it's repeatable, it's consistent, it's predictable, number one. Number two, there's true tech IP, right? They've got patents, they've got tech they've built and innovation they can point to. And then number three, they've got sticky, low-churn customers with enterprise, middle market, and in some cases, SME customers. SMB, a little higher churn. And that's easier for strategics to understand, and it's easier for the public markets to understand. Versus a lending club where their revenue base is basically set the repeat button every January. It's very difficult to predict. There's balance sheet risk, there's credit risk, there's interest rate risk, et cetera, et cetera. And so the public markets have looked at that and said, okay, we're going to look at this on a book value basis. We're not going to give it tech multiple credit. And that's created really challenging dynamics. And if you think about consumer-facing fintech outcomes, there's not been a single acquisition that's been meaningful, right? Maybe you think about personal capital's exit at a billion. It's pretty much the most meaningful fintech exit on the consumer side. You look at Goldman's acquisitions, like they were smaller and they tried to bolt things together to, to create markets. There just hasn't been really strong outcomes on the consumer side in the public markets, nor on the M&A front. So that's the biggest driver behind us being B2B oriented and looking at specific subsectors within fintech, specific VCs that were market mapping. But that's not to say that in five to 10 years, you know, there's a trend line within consumer or SMB that we think is really important and transformative that is true white space where you don't see incumbents or existing fintechs playing, nor could they potentially add on. And it's more of a true platform or business versus just a product or feature, right? Which is a really hard thing to discern in those trend lines. And so that's why we have that mentality. And I think it will persist. I think it's going to take some pretty massive dislocation and disruption for us to say, wake up one day and say, okay, we just want to double down and completely focus on consumer SMB again. We've been in those spaces. We've operated in those spaces. We just think at this stage, public markets, M&A, and then frankly, the incumbent pressure is just too high to really create new categories. Well, Logan, I feel that we could continue talking for hours. Unfortunately, we, we cannot do that. But, uh, you know, thank you for joining us. Before we let you go, we really like to showcase a little bit of the personal side of our guests. Maybe you can share some of your favorite hobbies and, and you know, what, what do you enjoy outside of Finn? Yeah, absolutely. So I like uh, two things kind of as a hobby perspective, at least for right now in COVID. And certainly these things have persisted over my life. One is chess. So I started the Duke chess team undergrad and I'm a chess nerd and uh, I love the game of chess and I still play chess all the time online. And then we have a chess board in our office. And I'm very passionate about an organization called First Move, where we're donating and they provide childhood education in third grade classrooms, public schools for chess. I'm very passionate about chess education in schools um, because it creates 
really strong value system, pattern recognition, good sportsmanship, and so forth that I think is really important. And the second thing I'm, I'm passionate about is fitness. And so I was an investor and an early adopter of Tonal, which uh, is my favorite piece of weightlifting equipment and my coolest thing that I have in our house. Um, and it's just a, basically a technology-enabled weightlifting machine. Think about it as Peloton for weightlifting. And I use it every day. And so I'm really passionate about that on the personal side as well. And even though I'm working out at home, it feels like it's an escape. So I have a lot of fun with that. And it's a way for me to turn my brain off and switch it to something else, much like chess is as well. So that's a little bit about me personally. You know, I got to ask you, uh, any reviews about The Queen's Gambit, Netflix's huge, huge chess show? I love it. I'm such a huge fan of the movie. I think it was, you know, there was a lot of darkness and reality in that movie that made it very tangible and relatable. But the chess coverage and the being true to the game in terms of being inside of tournaments, what that feels like, what your emotional state is, what your body language is, all completely aligned because they hired grandmasters and true chess professionals to coach that. Um, so I love it. And as you know, and this has been publicly reported, it's created a massive uplift and adoption around the game of chess, particularly from female players. And I am psyched about that. And I think it should continue. I hope they do another season. I would love to uh, support that. And I think it's a, a fantastic trend. And it was my favorite show in COVID. Yeah, I, I watched it in, in less than a day. So it was amazing. Cool. So next time uh, you're visiting New York, I suspect we might find you around Washington Square Park playing chess. Right. All the time. Uh, <laughs> it was good to spend time with Miguel. Thanks for having me. And uh, excited to do it again and happy to uh, speak anytime and, and uh, geek out on FinTech. Thank you, Logan. And now you're a friend of, of the show, friend of Wharton, more importantly. I know you went to a different school, but that doesn't matter. And so you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Miguel. All the best. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.